23 through 29. Listen to the word of God. Now, before faith came, we were imprisoned and guarded under the law until faith would be revealed. Therefore, the law was our disciplinarian until Christ came, so that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer subject to a disciplinarian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek or Gentile. There is no longer slave or free. There is no longer male and female. For all of you are one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. May God bless the hearing and reading of his holy word. Let us pray. Lord, open up our eyes and our hearts that we may encounter you, the living God, through your word proclaimed. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. About 20 years ago, give or take, I was asked to chair the Peace and Unity Task Force in the Philadelphia Presbytery. And the reason that we needed a Peace and Unity Task Force is because we were fighting and not unified. So they asked me, and I think it was an earnest, they earnestly asked me, I think maybe partially I was too young, uh, to say no, uh, but I also believed in the process. So I was given a budget, and we brought in some of the best thinkers in the country to talk to us because, you know, our, our differences were theological. So therefore, if it's a theological problem, it would follow that there could be a theological solution. Now, Initially, they were well attended, okay, and they were positive. But eventually, um, the attendance, you know, got smaller. And the next time we had an opportunity to debate a controversial thing, we were back where we had been. There had been no changes. Fast forward about less than 20 years later, I was part of a uh, loose foundation-funded dialogue on character. And there were Buddhists, Jews, Muslims, and Christians. And we were gathered together. We were scholars and practitioners, and we had uh, a two-year process together. And I was asked to lead one session. And part of the, the whole purpose was to kind of understand how each group, each tradition approached things. And uh, the, the assignment I was given was that we were to talk about something from our practices. Pick a practice from your tradition, teach it to everybody, and then that way we could understand. Now, Buddhism is, is almost all practice, right? There are plenty of practices in Judaism, as well as Islam. And of course, our, the Roman Catholics who were part of this, there's a lot of practice. But Protestants, we don't, we don't really have a lot of practice. We don't have anything uniquely that is ours. Matter of fact, at some levels, Protestantism was formed 
against any kind of practice, right? It, it was anti-ritual. That was probably a mistake. It wasn't probably. It was a mistake on our part. But nonetheless, we don't. We're not shaped by ritual. So I, I finally I thought and thought about this, and I, and I realized, well, okay, I grew up in kind of evangelical, evangelistic circles. So one of the things when I was a kid, in the church I grew up, there would be testimonies. And you'd get up and you'd share what God was doing in your life, right? Okay, and sometimes that was very powerful. Maybe some of you grew up in churches where you would do that. So I had this group. I said, okay, I want each of you to break up into another with a person who's different from your tradition and share a time when you really felt the presence of God or whatever you, you call that. And I think it went pretty well. But one of the things I always remember, there were two women, uh, both of them academics. One was a nun. And the other woman was a Shia Muslim who was also a practitioner of Sufi. Sufi is kind of a mystical tradition in Islam. Matter of fact, you maybe have heard about it recently because a lot of their holy sites were destroyed uh, by ISIS, both in Timbuktu as well as in Syria. And as I observed them from a distance, they were sharing, and then they were praying together, and then they were embracing, and they both shared it was one of the most powerful things that ever happened to them as they shared their experience of God with each other. Now, what went wrong with the Christian event? Okay, We all had gone to basically the same schools. We had taken the same vows. We had a vested interest, <laughs> a, a vested interest in getting along, but we, we couldn't do it. So how, how could a nun and a Sufi Muslim figure it out and a group of theologically trained Christian pastors couldn't? I think in part, that to make an interfaith dialogue work, you, you have to go with an open mind and hopefully an open heart, or there's no reason to get together. It's, it's trickier. You're very aware of the differences before you get there. And, and, and to make it work, you're ready to listen. And on some level, you want to try to see each other as children of God. That doesn't mean you, you do away with the differences. Okay? You know, my interactions with other religions has just made me a stronger and more convinced Christian. But if I'm going to sit down with people different than me, then I have to be open somehow to see that God is in them one way or the other, or at least try to understand where they're coming from. And I think <laughs> we often forget to do this with our fellow Christians. We don't often go with each other with open minds and open hearts. If we disagree with someone, we are more likely to be ready to speak our mind than to listen. And there's a tendency for us to see it, the people that agree with us as the children of God. But if someone disagrees with us, even if they claim to be a Christian, then we question their motivation. We question how if they truly are a Christian. an open mind and heart, a willingness to listen before speaking, and to recognize that other Christians belong to Christ, 
If they belong to Christ, therefore they are the children of God, and they are our brothers and sisters. The Apostle Paul claims that if we belong to Christ, we are all the people of God, heirs to the promise, the offspring of Abraham, the children of God. The scripture readings from the last month have had a compelling theme, and this is what the lectionary has given us. From John's prayer in John 17, we are told that Jesus prays that we may be one, that his people, the disciples may be one, as the Father and the Son are one. In the day of Pentecost, we see the reversal of what happened in the Tower of Babel, where humanity was scattered at Babel, but at Pentecost, everyone is brought together. And again, on Trinity this Sunday, last week, the idea in the Gospel of John that we as Christians are brought into the life of the unity of the Trinity, the love that is God we are brought into. And today with this radical vision in Galatians 3, in Christ the many, the scattered, have become one. One of the great things sometimes it is in the lectionary readings, how does the Old Testament lesson speak to the New Testament and vice versa? And one of the most intriguing and thought-provoking and prayer-provoking phrases in all the Hebrew scriptures is this idea in Psalm 42.7, what we read today, that deep speaks to deep. Now, what the psalmist meant was one thing, perhaps, right? But this passage, this idea that the deep of God, the mystery of God, speaks to the deep within us, the mystery of our own soul. And as I'm listening to the reading from the Psalms, deep calls to deep, how does that speak to the epistle? Through faith, you are all the children of God. I am struck by how deaf we may be to the inner voice of the divine. To know you are a child of God is to begin to heal your soul. To know that others are children of God is to begin to heal the world. My renewed sense of commitment to seeking Christian unity is not born from sentimentality, but from both a conviction that it is central to the biblical and apostolic faith, and also a sadness that on a fundamental level, it is so unimportant to so many in the Christian church. Now, we are born into a particular time, into a particular family, into a particular culture. We don't have a choice there. And if I had a 30-minute conversation, more or less, with most of you, I could probably map out where you, about 75% or so, where you stand politically, why you belong to this church as opposed to another one, or if you're not a churchgoer, why that is the case. And I could probably guess your position on a range of social issues. You could do the same with me, right? You find out where you come from, what your interests are, you can usually figure people out, right? Now, we're not robots. People surprise me all the time, all right? I think they're going to come this way, and suddenly they think this way. That's, that's good. But my point is, where our position in culture, it follows the line of our natural process of socialization. Where we are on a lot of issues is a function of nature. 
It's a function of our particular position. Okay, there's all kinds of studies for that. You know that to be the case. However, <laughs> this is really important. True Christianity is not natural. Baptism is a supernatural event. Christ did not die to, to say to the world, hey, you guys are okay. All you are lacking is some nice cross jewelry and Christmas. Okay? That's not why Jesus came and died. He died because God so loved the cosmos, the world. He died to free us from sin, death, the world, and evil. He died to heal us from the hurts and wounds that we have received in this world. He died, as we are told in Ephesians, to destroy the dividing walls of hostility that exist between people. And the primary wall that that's talking about is the division between Jews and Gentiles. In Christ, there is no Jew or Gentile. Now that idea there is what enables you and I, as Gentiles, to worship the living God. Now some of you may have a Jewish background, but the most of us are Gentiles. Paul, who says this roughly some 15 years earlier, was one of the most observant of all Jews to the point of persecuting anyone who threatened the purity of his people. That all changed when he ran into the resurrected Christ. And because of that encounter, Paul seeks to overturn the way things have been for nearly 1,300 years. There is neither Jew or Gentile in Christ. What's the implication of that? Okay? We all benefit from the fact that we're Gentiles. But there's a greater implication, I think. For our time, what Paul says in Galatians 3 is as radical as saying that William Barber and Franklin Graham, Alexandria Osco-Cortez and Sarah Huckabee, Pete Buttigieg and Mike Pence, many Trump supporters and most of the refugees in internment camps are actually one family. And what they share is more important than their differences. What they share is more important than their differences. If baptismal grace means anything, then in God's reality, they are one family. Now, how we all move can move from these demonic illusions of hate and tolerance and contempt of this shadow land that we, we live in, that seems impossible. How can we get beyond all this division, this tribalism, to the point of hate and contempt? Well, with God, all things are possible. And it begins by each of us consenting to the implications of belonging to Christ. In other words, it begins by saying yes again to what you said yes to when Christ came into your life. In your baptism, in your conversion, in your confirmation, in your renewal, every time you say yes to God, the power to be different is there because of the grace of God in Christ through the Holy Spirit. The church had become predominantly a Gentile community 
somewhere within 50 years after Paul writes this. And though both women and slaves made up perhaps a majority of the early church, the social implications of in Christ there's no male or female, nor slave or free, that has taken much longer. In Christ there is no Jew or Gentile, that happened pretty quickly. The implications of the other thing has taken us a longer period of time. Our, one's biology or chromosomal makeup has no significance for eternity. Okay. Yesterday, after walking six miles, it was very comforting me, for me to know that my arthritis doesn't come with me into eternity. Okay. That's a good thing to know, right? All right? I bet you my tennis game will be better also in eternity. One's social economic situation has no significance for eternity. It doesn't matter what your social position is. It doesn't matter what your credit rating is. It doesn't matter what continent you were born on, what country you were born on. That has no bearing for eternity. Therefore, the things that don't matter to God should not matter to us. We, um, I took a group of adults and teenagers, older teenagers, to Ghana a number of years ago to build a pediatric hospital that we had raised money for. And so we were in partnership with a, a ministry in Ghana, and we were building a pediatric hospital. And it was hard work, mixing concrete by hand and laying blocks in the African heat was a challenge. Matter of fact, there was one young man from Ghana there. But we were mixing mud together, mixing mortar by hand. And I, I was slowly dying. I, I, I was ready to just, you know, go to, go to heaven. And he looked up at me in broken English. He says, for an old man, you are strong. Okay. So, you know, <laughs> one of those backhanded compliments. At the end of that day, one of our young adults was very quiet. And I asked him if he was okay. And he said to me, he, he just felt overwhelmed. He said, I was just trying to wrap my mind around that there are Christians in Africa. That's what he said. I'm just trying to wrap my mind around there are Christians in Africa. And there were tears in his eyes. Now, I was tired. And so, good thing I walked away because my first reaction was, you idiot. <laughs> there have been Christians in Africa 1,700 years longer than there have been Christians in Philadelphia. I want to say, while your ancestors were naked, worshiping trees, running around Europe, people are celebrating the Lord's Supper and worshiping in Africa. I didn't say that, though. All right. I've used restraint. But after I thought about it for a while, it dawned on me. He now had seen it with his own eyes. Of course he knew there were Christians all over the world. But now the Roganian Christians, he knew by name. He had worked side by side with. He had broken bread with. He had come to love as they loved him. We can choose to be pagan or Darwinistic in how we view others. It's really how a lot of the world works. We can reduce people to their biological or economic identity and status. We can even resort to legalistic categories based on pre-Christian ideas. We can do all of that. 
We can look at each other that way. Or we can choose to look at each other as God does. We can live out the reality of our baptism that we have been baptized in Christ. And all who have been baptized in Christ with us, we are one family. We can acknowledge that all that the fall of humanity brought about, the separation between men and women, the enmity between brothers, brother killing brother, the destruction of the earth, the scattering of people, all that in Christ has been brought back together. The enmity between men and women is healed in Christ. Our brother is not our enemy. Once again, our brother is our brother and sister in Christ. Regardless of what language or culture you come from, if you are baptized in Christ, we are all one. We can not only be clothed in Christ, as Paul says here, but we can begin to see each other as Christ sees us. There is no more radical statement in all of the ancient literature. Philosophically, mythology, pagan writings, ethical treatises from the greatest thinkers of this time period. There's nothing more radical than what a first century rabbinically trained former Pharisee says. In Christ, there is no male, no female, no Jew or Gentile, nor slave or free. That in Christ, we are all the children of God. The beginning of trying to heal the differences that are among Christians is not about a sentimental holding hands, singing song. It's not about having a theological conference. It's about saying yes to what Christ has accomplished. As Dietrich Bonhoeffer says, it is the love of Christ in me loving the Christ in you. It's consenting to the work that God has done. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen and amen. Let us stand together and say what we believe in the word.